Well, you can open your Bibles to Esther chapter 8 this morning. Esther 8. We saw last week a literal twist of fate in this remarkable story. Um, It was determined by a man named Haman that a man named Mordecai ought to die. This was a prideful and personal vendetta, an abuse of power by the second most influential man in the Persian kingdom under Xerxes, if not in the world. So Haman uh, builds this enormous gallows or a pole by which to impale this Jew that he despises. And at 10 feet per story, we're talking about a pole that would have hoisted Mordecai's grieving, writhing body up seven and a half stories into the air publicly for all to see. But instead, through a providential turn of events, Haman himself is the one executed on this pole. And as you'll see in today's text, the bold Mordecai will then take his place at the king's right hand. But we have to pause and remember that at stake still are the lives of millions of people. We left on a good note last week, and as tragic as Mordecai's unjust death may have been, the gravest tragedy is still impending, and it simply can't be reversed. We think, why not just just reverse the edict, just take it back, just nix it, just send out another memo. Apparently, in something called the Law of the Medes and Persians, when the king makes a sovereign decree, it cannot be reversed. It's irreversible. And in particular, what happens now is that we look at the text today and we're going to see what makes Mordecai and Esther amazing leaders. What makes them amazing leaders? Because God has sovereignly really put them in powerful and political uh, positions. So let's begin chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus, uh, his Greek name is Xerxes, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring that he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. I mean, we can't make note of enough ironies in this story. The ring that once graced the finger of Haman now lays on Mordecai's hand. Haman was in authority. This huge, big reversal happens. Haman is in Paled on the rod he built for Mordecai. The queen tells the king, hey, Mordecai is my adoptive dad, and the king promotes Mordecai to Haman's position. Not only is Haman, or rather Mordecai, now second in command, he's also very wealthy. What did we just read? All of Haman's estate went through Esther and to whom? To Mordecai. So I just want you to understand the gravity of what's happened here. I mean, we can only put it in so many words and in so many different ways. But over the course of a single meal, Mordecai goes from powerless to powerful. 
He goes from being the treasurer of the town of Eau Plaine to being the vice president of the United States of America over a Caesar salad. That's exactly what happened. I mean, this is unfathomable. And that is the grace and favor of God. He's in charge of and given the signet ring over the greatest empire arguably to ever arise in world history. This is God's providence in the man's life. And the importance of the signet ring here I don't think can, can be uh, overstated. This is the, uh, what would be the present-day power of attorney. Uh, someone who has the, the POA or the power of attorney is, is given uh, the right to make legal decisions on behalf of somebody who's suffering or sick or dying. And um, really, Mordecai, um, in having the signet ring, becomes the legal authority of King Xerxes. That is to say that he speaks for the king. And importantly, the story is told that he's given this signet ring, the signet ring exceedingly important. It's the equivalent of the legal power of attorney. So again, he's making decisions on the king's behalf. And notice what Esther in today's text um, has done when, when she's given authority. And in turn, what you and I, I think, should do when we're given authority. She humbly accepts the authority. She just accepts it. That's what she does. I mean, surely there would have been tons of excuses that Esther could have made for herself for why she shouldn't be queen. Um, let's start with this one. What, what excuse do you think she could give first and foremost? I'm a Jew. I don't deserve to be the queen of a Persian empire. I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm not a part of these people. I didn't come from a royal bloodline. Um, She's probably in her early to mid-20s at this point. She could also say, I am what? I'm too young for this role. Have you seen the maturity of 20-somethings? Hello. Like, I'm not capable of this. Okay? Um, I uh, don't have an MBA in leadership, O King. I uh, haven't read many John Maxwell books. I mean, thanks, but no thanks, but I'm not prepared to be the queen of this of this empire. She doesn't do that. She simply and humbly accepts what God has placed before her. She doesn't say, I haven't watched enough Tony Robbins. I haven't, I haven't checked out enough to-dos and not-to-dos. She just accepts the position. And likewise, Mordecai hasn't exactly been the best leader to date, but he's got the power of life and death under his thumb now. Surely he didn't feel qualified. But, but, and here's a point. If you are humble, if you love God, if you love people, if you do your best in God's providence, it'll work out all right if you accept a position that you don't think you qualify for. Amen? Have confidence in that. Esther had it. Mordecai had it. Here they are with positions of influence. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm, I'm saying summarily that sometimes the people who feel least qualified for positions of leadership are actually most qualified because they have one prerequisite, humility. It's an important one. Employers love it. They crave it. The king loves it. 
That's why they get promoted in part. Second, great leaders have, in addition to humility, passion. People don't only believe what a leader believes. People get excited about what a leader gets excited about. Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet. She wept. She pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she says, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamar. Hamedatha, Hamadatha. Like I always tell you, just read it confidently, quickly, move the heck on. Okay, that's what we do. Okay, somebody came up to me last week and said, you know, I've always heard the name Haman's uh, pronounced Haman. I said, oh, <laughs> yep, <laughs> probably right. Um, I'll continue the reading now, which he wrote. To destroy the Jews who are all in the provinces of the king, for how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Can you just hear her passion in what she's saying? How can I bear to see the destruction of God's people? How can I deal with the destruction of my kin? These are my family members. We we wouldn't say that Esther has been very emotional up until this point, would we? I mean, she's been relatively unattached, unaffiliated with any of this. At least she hasn't been revealed by the author to cry a lot or to get angry at anybody. Today, she's seen falling at the feet of the king, weeping, pleading, in the same way that she saves her words for the king to get something important across. Today, she saves her emotions for the king, and at the right time, and for the right reasons, she becomes suddenly passionate. And the king thinks, this isn't Esther. This has got to be important. This isn't how she normally is. This must have some urgency attached to it. If she'd just been perpetually crying, throwing herself at the feet of the king, what would he have said? It's like the dog who always barks, right? The bark never scares anybody. But the one who barks seldomly really gets your attention, doesn't he? What's she concerned about? I think that's important to note. She's concerned about God's people. You know, you would think that I wouldn't need to say what I'm about to say. Um, But even I need to hear what I'm about to say. I think all of us do from time to time. There's only two things that are going to be in heaven with us. What are they? God. What else? His people. I mean, that's it. I mean, things that we can take from this life to the next. It's God and it's his and it's it's his people. And that's it. All other things are going to what? They're going to be victims of either rust or moth. The scriptures say they're going to fade away all pursuits in this life no matter how lofty educational pursuits you can have more degrees than fahrenheit right and and you're not you're not going to carry those with you into the through the pearly gates 
And so people mattered to Esther. People should matter to us. Things are fine, but people ought to be what we're really passionate or who we're really passionate about. So humility makes great leaders. Passion makes great leaders. What else makes great leaders? Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, that's his Persian name, is Xerxes, says to Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king... Okay, you know there's pride in a man's heart when he's referring to himself in the third person. Isn't this just odd? The king, the king, instead of me, me, you know. In the name of the king and, and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Let me ask you this. How many 20-somethings, how many 20-something orphans do you know that are concerned with the plights of other people? As is Esther. This girl is a queen. She has riches and servants and makeup artists and massage therapists and every essential oil you could possibly dream of. And she says, This isn't about me, O king. This is about God's people. They're not safe. They're not blessed. They're in danger. There's a curse on them. You know she came into a real transforming work of the God of the Bible in that she's grown and matured. And at 20-something, she's not thinking about herself anymore. She loves God's people. A third characteristic of a great leader is, is love. How much do we love other people? Who do you love? Could I invite you? Could I beg you to love among those in the world who don't know Christ, or I should say in addition to those in the world, God's own people in his church? So many people come to church and have no friends in the church. I don't understand that. I just don't get that. I, I understand you want to have relationships with peers and, and co-workers and everybody in the world that's part of this, but, but a particular affection ought to be had for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Esther could have said, you know what? I've had a hard life. I'm going to live for me. Thank you very much. And she didn't. She made time for other people. She loved other people. Now she's trying to rescue other people. Amen? And now we're going to make a shift and we're going to go from, from love and hugs and beauty to a subject, the murder of women and children. Um, this gets a little bit complicated because we all have non-Christian friends and, and, and co-workers and professors who don't understand parts of the Bible and they say it's a bad book and... God kills and smites all these people and, and the Bible sanctions genocide and there's racism and, and hatred throughout the Old Testament and sexism. And anybody ever heard thoughts or 
comments like that. Um, you see it on TV if you don't in close proximity in relationships. So we arrive at one of these complicated scriptures this morning. Um, this is what happens when you move through the Bible verse by verse. Um, I wouldn't propose to do a topical series, for example, on the murder of women and children. Like for the next 12 weeks, we're going to talk about the murder of women and children in the Bible. Part 11 is going to be bring your friends week. Or, you, you know, we, we wouldn't do that. But because we move through verse by verse, we come across some difficult subjects at times. And 1 Timothy tells us that all scripture, not just some scripture, is God-breathed. Meaning it came, it proceeded from, it's the self-revelation of the heart of God. So all of it's useful to us. That's what the Bible says. And so when you come to sections like this, you can either ignore them. You can change them. Some people change them. You can apologize for them. Or you can teach them. And we're going to choose to do the latter this morning. Let's read verses 9 through 14. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in his own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. And then here comes the message, saying, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's services, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the city. Okay, let's recap, okay? How did we get here? Haman sent out a decree that on a particular day, all of God's people, all of them, could be killed. Men, women, children included. All of their goods plundered, stripped from them. Gold in the teeth, you name it. It was on the calendar. It was announced in advance, even to God's people. All the enemies of God's people, namely Xerxes' soldiers, were prepping for this. They're getting weapons together. They're, they're assembling battle plans. Who's going to wipe out the Burris family on County P? And, and who's going to kill the Culps over here on 153 East? And, and who's going to take those children? And who's going to, to get those cows? And who's going to take that land? And the plans are being made, and God's people know that the plans are being made. 
And according to the laws of the time, the king couldn't reverse this. It was irreversible. So all they had to do, instead of changing a law that's already made, which they could not, was to create another law. And so now Mordecai and Esther make a law that allows God's people to defend themselves against the attackers. And the question that we wrestle with is, was it justifiable? Was it justifiable? And I'd like to give you a number of considerations. We're going to get into um, war this morning, the theology of war. We're going to get into the theology of pacifism in the remaining minutes. And I want to give you some things to consider first. Haman was an Agagite. And the Agagites... primary reason for being, I think we could argue, in their history was to wipe out the Jews. That was what they wanted to accomplish. And so if someone were to knock at your door and, and say, hi, um, my name's Larry and, and, I, and I'm an Agagite, you would shut the door. Were you a Jew? Um, and, and the idea of, of God's people... Um, God's people, that God has a select group of people, really stems all the way back from the book of Exodus. God came to a man named Abraham, and he tells him, we, we looked at this in November, uh, would have been two years ago, and a year and a half ago. And, and, and he said to Abraham, I'm going to bring forth a people from you, and from your people will come one who is the Savior putting it in my own words now, Jesus Christ. And, and God said, those that bless you, I will what? I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I'll protect you. It's like a dad really saying to, to his, a family, you're my kids, and I'm going to be there for you, and you're going to be safe because I'm your dad, and I'm going to look after you. So we cannot overlook that God's desire has always been to have a people, to have a people. That's just what it is. It's like a dad walking into an orphanage and saying, I'm going to be all of your daddies. I'm just going to be dad to all of you kids, all of you illegitimate children. I'm going to take you in. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to bless you. So it's something that God desires and it's something that God does in the Old Testament. And what happens is as soon as God declares for himself a people, his arch enemy, his rival Satan, also walks into a bunch of other orphanages and declares people for himself. And he empowers them to destroy God's people. Well, why would Satan do that? Why? Because who would eventually be born through the people of God? The Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the defining moment in all of human history. How do you prevent the Savior from being born? Well, you wipe out all of God's people. Okay? Without God's people, Satan thought there can be no Savior. And in Exodus 17, the Agagites rise up to wipe the earth of the Israelites. And you may say, well, shouldn't God have been patient with the Agagites. Well, between Exodus 17 
And the story of Esther, Haman the Agagite, that's a period of a thousand years. The Agagites did not change during that time frame. Their goal for a thousand years was to murder God's people. Is God patient? Yes, he is. If somebody lived next door to you and they said, we're going to wipe out your whole family tomorrow. And they tried and they failed. And their kids ended up being born and becoming adults and tried later and failed. And then the grandkids were born and they became adults and they tried to wipe your family out and failed. And that went on for a thousand years I think it'd be safe to say that family's not going to come around, right? I mean, they're not going to change this, this strategy. This is, this is utter hatred and racism. And for a thousand years, negotiation doesn't work. Mediation doesn't work. So it's, it's so easy to say God is a cruel God. These are primitive people. These are barbarians, really. And now we've evolved. And now we're more civilized. Um, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. <laughs> that we look back across human history and say, we've got it together now. We're, we're smarter. We're better. And I've told you before, the Agagites ought to have been completely eradicated in Exodus 17 as God told King Saul, but he left the king to live in disobedience to God. So the only reason we have the threat to kill 15 million people, scholars say up to, is because one of the Agagites lived to begin with. This is not murder, what Esther and Mordecai are decreeing with this language. It's the exact language of Haman's decree, but reversed. It is justice. If you do this, we will do this. We're going to match your assault with righteous justice. Another consideration is that the violence was limited to one day and one day alone. Esther and Mordecai's decree. This doesn't continue for weeks or months or years or generations. It's not the Hatcliffs and McCoys. It's not the Capulets and Montagues. It's simply one day. One day makes it nearly impossible to abuse the authority that you've been given. This means you can defend yourself today. But if you wake up tomorrow and you're still angry, you can't do anything about it. You can't go out and harm people. Uh, another point, the Bible does distinguish between killing and murder. What is one of the Ten Commandments? You fill in the blank and fill it in correctly. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. It does not read thou shalt not kill. And they are different. Haman wanted to murder Mordecai. The Agagites wished to murder God's people. If God's people defend themselves, they're not murdering. They're defending. And sometimes defending includes regret, regrettably killing. 
If someone tries uh, to murder you and your family and you kill them, you, let's just be clear, you are not murdering. Murdering is unjust. Killing is just. If an officer returns fire, that's not murder. Do we value human life? Absolutely, we value human life. But sometimes the only way to value the human life of multitudes is to take out the human life of a few. And engaging evil is not evil. According to God's word, it is righteous. It is holy. This does not say, go out into the streets, look for Agagites, and slay them. It says, if they show up at your house, defend yourself. Another thought for you to chew on. Um, Though the defense against women and children was permitted in Esther and Mordecai's decree, there's no report that women and children were harmed in this story. In fact, when we get into chapter 9, we'll see that the body count does not include women. It does not include children. Um, What this reversal does do is it permits God's people to defend themselves against whoever would show up to harm them. Another thought for you is this. God's people, though they were given permission through this decree, did not plunder their enemies. Haman wanted to get rich on the genocide. Yet in chapter 9, we'll soon read, the Israelites did not plunder the goods. This is, this is important because it shows that they weren't out to be what? They weren't out to be greedy. They weren't out to acquire possessions for themselves. Um, God, um, and yet another thought, he in no way posits this violence that's coming forth in this decree by Esther and Mordecai as, as normal. This isn't some holy war. This is a very unique situation in history, and the survival of a race is at stake. So what can we take from this for today? Okay, how do we make this applicable? Um, Here's what we can take away for today. Soldiers, in many cases, have a right to defend themselves. Police officers in many cases, have a right to defend themselves. We ought to pray for them. I cannot imagine the difficulty of a situation that is complicated philosophically, morally, theologically, and needs to be made in an instant, under stress, when a person's life is in danger, so we need to pray for them. And we also need to pray for something else that the text addresses clearly, and that is racism. And it does still exist. And it is, in many cases, systemic. And the defense of innocent life wouldn't have been needed if racism wasn't present in this text in the first place. So we pray for heart change and for purity and that we would be able to look and peer at the inside of people. And so we'll soon see in chapter 9, there's both mourning and there's 
rejoice in. And there are funerals where mothers and daughters and fathers and brothers are weeping and they're simultaneously rejoicing on the part of the people of God. And I don't know that this is what the story symbolizes necessarily, but I'm going to make it symbolic of, of the cross of Jesus Christ in, in this conclusion. Jesus Christ was sinless. He was betrayed. He was murdered. There was great mourning. But for those of us who are saved, there is also great what? Rejoicing. Amen? Amen. We're going to stop there this morning. We'll look at the remainder of chapter 8 next week. We may even get into chapter 9. Uh, let's pray. Father, I just I pray, God, that we would be people of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would not allow ourselves to get politically charged Father, I pray that we would put the scriptures before our party. I pray, Lord, that we would see you and, and your wisdom in the world and that we would not idolize fallen humanity. I pray that we would listen to what you're saying. I pray, Lord for our police officers. I pray, Lord, for our troops, our firemen, all civic servants that put themselves in harm's way. Lord, we pray that you would give them split-second wisdom. God, help them to discern in a moment correctly. Lord, we just pray that you would protect them, that you would keep them safe, that you'd bring them home to their families, even those we have stationed around the world now, Lord, that you would bring them home, Lord. And Lord, I just, I just also pray that you would have each of us who are here search our heart and discern if in any way, if in any way we are we have a proclivity to racism. I pray that we would see every human life, Lord, as you do. I pray that we would love all people equally. I pray that you would give us kingdom thoughts and strategies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.